0: Hello and welcome to A Year With The Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by The Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our seventh episode, we'll discuss the revolution brought by Revolver, how it changed music, and what songs from it are still underrated. Plus, we're pondering the musical techniques used by the Fab Four that makes their music vital even today, so stick around. As with every month, here to guide me through this meditation on the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer for the music blog The Delete Bin. What's new with you today, Rob?
1: Oh, it's a sunny day, Graham, and I'm just bobbing along as usual. Well, oh, that's
0: good to hear. And joining us this month is Alex Kennard, a musician whose credits include the group The Luvico Treatment, and who co-produces a Doctor Who podcast called Reality Bomb. I've never heard of him. Hello, Alex. What just say, of course, I do know Alex. What are you talking about? I have never heard of you. Actually, I actually no, I, I've changed. I rescind that. I I've never. I, I have no idea who you are either. I tell you.
2: Yeah, I was just walking down the street, and some guy was like, "Hey, dude, do you want to be in a podcast?" Yeah. And I was like, "Who's it about?" And he was like, "The Beatles." And I was like, "Yeah, alright."
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. We do this every month uh, while producing a Doctor Who podcast called Reality Bob.
1: But, all right. Yeah. Nice, nice plug there. Nice. Uh, yeah, thank, nice you, thank, cross, thank, uh, thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank you. We don't actually yeah. don't plug the other podcasts very often, but here we are.
1: Very
0: good. <laughs> so if you're all looking for recap, this is episode seven. So just go back to episode one and you'll hear about how I'm listening to a new album by the Beatles every month. Blah, blah, blah. Got Rob to join me. Blah, blah, blah. Doing a podcast. There you go and with that taken care of in perfunctory fashion let's talk about this month's selection revolver which was released 50 years ago this year on august 5th so here's everything you need to know about revolver in two minutes more or less one two three four <laughs> one two
3: let me tell you Sun is out. I've got something I can laugh about. When your the possessions start to weigh you down, you stay home. She goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone, but now he's gone. She doesn't need him. I
0: Now, Rob. Yes. We talked last month about the spike in maturity uh, when we heard the Beatles on Rubber Soul. Yeah. And it seems to me that the maturity spike on Revolver makes the one on Rubber Soul seem rather minor in comparison. What caused this massive maturity spike to happen again?
1: Well, I, I think it, it, it comes down to a couple of different, uh, very important factors. Uh, another spike that we should sort of note uh, at this point in history is the technology spike. Uh, lots of uh, tech, new technology was being introduced uh, in the studio, and, uh, and it allowed for a lot of different sonic possibilities, which the Beatles, of course, were always interested in from, you know, from the time they first started recording records. Um, but here, they, they were able to take advantage of so many new features uh, that were pioneered uh, in Abbey Road uh, and EMI Studios at the time and were, were being emulated all over the world. Uh, one of those things was... Uh, sort of re- reverse tape loops and varispeed, automatic uh, double tracking, you know, all these all these different recording techniques, plus, you know, mic experiment experimentation, stuff like that, were all happening at this time. And uh, Revolver is a direct product of, of all of that, that type of stuff, and we'll get into some of those uh, effects as we talk about the tracks. Another one was uh, just uh, their approach to making albums in general. And We saw part of this on Rubber Soul, uh, in that they wanted to make uh, an album that stood on its own as a as an artistic statement and ju- not just a sort of uh, memento of, of their live act, you know. So that 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 was uh, definitely in place here, and even more so because when uh, when this album came out in August, uh, it was at by the end of that month uh, they'd stopped touring, so that the record had to carry that much more weight, and so because of all that because of the new emphasis on on the recording aspect of things uh it uh it went up uh, another level and and of course at the time this is 1966 which is a banner year for uh for pop music in general i think it's the most important year of the decade for that um because, just because the competition was so high at that time uh and new new songs were being written and new recording techniques were being implemented painted black from the stones
0: uh, Pet sounds from the beach. Boys. Yeah,
1: all that stuff were were, were happening around this time. Uh, the birds, eight miles high, like those types of sounds, uh, which took pop music to another another level completely. So you know that's the that's the environment that the Beatles were in at this time.
0: Alex, what do you think distinguishes Revolver as an album above other Beatles albums?
2: For me, this is this is very much the moment where the Beatles the Beatles kind of matured into the cartoon characters that they would later become. <laughs> this, this is where they, each one of them in, in terms of their musical persona, in terms of the way that they write songs, even in terms of the way that they perform music and sing, this is where it really crystallizes into going to be. So you end up with the confessional artist, the troubadour love singer, the uh, lovable goof and the grumpy old man. Yeah. And they are so clearly that each one of those, these people that, uh, really i mean if you want to be pessimistic about it revolver marks the beginning of the end because this is the point where they become so individualized that eventually they'll fall apart for me at least anyway
0: yeah you're always the life of the party alex i know Uh, it's wonderful (laughs) (laughs) for me it's 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 a perfect album every single song on this album works it's an album where the obligatory Ringo song is Yellow Submarine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And and if that's the obligatory Ringo song, you're talking about a completely different league as far as I'm concerned. It's an album where we see Paul offering a real counterpoint to John for the first time in several albums. Um, I mean, we've got glimmerings on Help with Yesterday, but nothing so much on Rubber Soul. And this is the album where I think George really arrives. So, I mean, Mm. to a certain extent, I'm echoing what Alex said is that, you know, each Beatle sort of really comes on board with a sort of an, an, a very distinct individual persona uh, that they bring to the music. But they also sort of begin this sort of... They really, each of them, bring their A-game to an album as opposed yeah. to it sort of being a largely a John album with some Paul songs or largely a Paul album with some John Absolutely. songs. Yeah, and,
1: and they begin to, to bring uh, more full arrangements into the recording process as opposed to kind of working it out between them. I think that's an important thing as well. And maybe... Uh, You know, work on Yesterday, on the Help album, kind of started to initiate those types of things. So they would bring in like a completed idea for an arrangement as opposed to, um, you know, collaborating with with band members. And uh, as Alex said, you know, maybe that too is kind of a part of uh, the beginning of the end.
0: For me, it's also, there's also a real kind of interesting each of them have a very different point of view on on the kind of music they want to do uh, I mean I mean George has George has some really interesting ideas that you can see even in taxman and and he said she said but uh you know I mean John's is really getting to the psychedelia of it whereas whereas Paul is much more very much I, I just want to explore music for the sake of it in some ways mm-hmm. and, and I, mm-hmm. I I really like the, I, the it's such a wonderful juxtaposition I mean we went and we were talking we've been complaining about the track placement on the past several episodes, but I think we come to another uh, one where the track placement is amazing and it's just so unexpected, but you that you can go from something from Taxman to Eleanor Rigby, Rigby to I'm only sleeping. And yeah. it's like,
1: Oh my God, it's absolutely. <laughs> and those are all very different songs, aren't they? I mean, They're radically and, different. Uh, and we talked a little bit about in, in on past episodes as well, about uh, how they were experimenting with different genres and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, and, at, at this point in time, whereas before you could hear, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, they've clearly, you know, they've been listening to Bob Dylan here, or, you know, they've been listening to this or that. Here you can't really tell. Uh, and I think that's another important aspect of, of, of Revolver and how how it's on a different level than all the other albums that preceded it. Absolutely.
2: I do also feel that in, t- in terms of talking about the arrangement as well, you can really start to hear the uh, the kind of, the, the real real focuses that Paul McCartney and John Lennon get in this in this period of and, and continuing on as well, where Paul McCartney's arrangement starts to be very much about kind of looking backwards at things that have been and really perfecting uh, you know very traditional arrangements, a lot of music hall, that sort of thing. And you Mm. can start to hear John Lennon as well, looking around him at what's going on at the time, you know, talking about uh, studio experimentation like you were there, Rob. You know, there's a lot of that that he starts bringing in. And I think it starts to begin what is one of my favorite things about later Beatles, which is the real conflict between John Lennon trying to push what they do, the arrangements forward, and Paul McCartney always kind of looking a little bit back. And Mm. the conflict and and rubbing up against each other that you
0: can hear between those two very, very different approaches. What would we say are the real revelations on this album? Right.
2: I don't think you can talk about Revolver without talking about Tomorrow Never Knows.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think Tomorrow Never Knows no, I
2: definitely really indicate is, is Tomorrow Never Knows is the beginning of a change for everybody. You know, like, and I don't mean just the Beatles. I mean it's the beginning of a change for everybody because they take what's being done with. For instance, the, uh, the, the, the uh, sound technicians that are working on Doctor Who, the kind of studio experimentation, and they make that something that everybody is listening to. And that's kind of cool. That's a, a very intense moment, I think,
0: in the history of music. What I love about Tomorrow Never Knows is—is it's it's only about three minutes long. It's it's the same thing I noted about Day Tripper when we were talking about the singles. It's it isn't such a gigantic leap into experimentation. It's still within the confines of a pop song. But what it does is it blows up everything else about a pop Mm -hmm. song. Yeah. Yeah. And but but it does it in a very tightly contained kind of. I always like always surprised when Tomorrow Never Knows is over. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe it's done. It's
1: one of those songs that uh, it's it's as you. mentioned, Graham. It's it's not a long song, but it feels epic. Like it's just the way that it sounds, just feels expansive, you
0: Absolutely. know.
1: And uh, and I remember hearing or reading about uh, an interview with uh, uh, the guys from uh, uh, Chemical Brothers, and they used to say mm-hmm. that you know when they were stuck for an idea, they would throw on Tomorrow Never Knows, just as a <laughs> as a uh, as a way to to get their imaginations going, which I find incredible. You know, like it, that song sounds like a, a sort of a nineties kind of. Tune, you know, it's amazing that they were able to, to produce that, and just there was no frame of reference for this on a pop album before, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and when they, there's stories too about John Lennon sitting in front of George Martin with an acoustic guitar and just droning on a C chord, and then <laughs> uh, and then saying, "Oh, uh, you know, what what can we do with that?" Now I, I can imagine George Martin's jaw jaw probably dropped to the floor, you know, <laughs> and uh, and he got you know famously he got very very few. Uh, instructions from Lennon on what he wanted, so he kind of had to make it up along with uh, uh, Jeff Emmerich, who uh, was the engineer. And Jeff Emmerich was like something only like, like twenty years old at the time. <laughs> yeah, and he had this natural genius for for mic placement and for for uh, amplification. You know, I mean, it, it's just like a happy accident that he was a guy that they they had on on uh, you know on hand at the time. But all of his contributions were just so vital to that recording specifically, but but for for the album in general.
0: It's a, it's an it's a song that as as soon as the first the first set of the tape loop goes through that sort of <laughs> and you're just going, "Oh my god. It 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 it, 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 it's, it it's 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 We've talked often about the the way the opening of a Beatles song grabs you, but this this yeah. this is just unreal. It it, it has this kind. Of, it it just sounds like nothing that I've ever heard before. And,
1: and 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 beyond the beyond the tape loops and and all the effects, um, I'd like to talk about Ringo's drum pattern on that yeah. song. That was, yeah, amazing. I don't know how he came up. It's bonkers. Like I don't know how he came up with that. I mean. He knew, he probably knew that he couldn't put a standard backbeat on it. Mm -hmm. So instead he came up with this, and it's just, it's just so effective. Uh, And it's not, it's not uh, complicated at all, which is part of uh, Ringo's genius, really.
2: I actually, I feel like one of the really great things about the Beatles, that one of the things that really makes them a great band is the fact that each of them can play on each other's songs and adapt the way that they play to to kind of fit the style of each other's songwriting you know uh approach yes. um and i think ringo's drumming is is a really good example of that like right there he feels like the kind of the anger that is underlying a lot of john Lennon's music at this mm-hmm. stage in his life
1: and the turmoil uh, that that yeah, to me exactly. is like this It's that that central uh, idea in that song is is just turmoil um and uh it's weird because there's this weird juxtaposition between you know this sort of peaceful turn off your mind relax and float downstream but the music is just Mm -hmm. this whirlwind of sound and it's it's a really interesting contrast I I mean, we could spend the whole episode talking about this one track. I really think so. I really think so.
0: We really could. But I I, I want to move to another one that I think is is worth uh, talking about, which is Eleanor Rigby, which I think is almost in many ways the polar opposite of that song because it's a very tightly contained, very, uh, you know, very, very classically kind of constructed kind of song. But with, oh, my God. The, the level of maturity in the songwriting, the level of maturity in the actual way they use the music
1: and I think too it's one of uh, McCartney's uh, best sort of novelization type songs you know, and he, which he would sort of do throughout his career um, uh, and he was very good at being a sort of sort of mini novelist within his songs. you know there's some real characters in, in that particular tune, um, and you know that they have this huge backstory, which you can only imagine. it sort of ignites your imagination to. To kind of find out, well, who are these people and you know, why are they lonely?
3: Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door.
1: Who is it for? What, what's the whole story here? And it kind of pulls you in in that regard.
0: And that's one of the things I love about the later Beatles is mm-hmm. that kind of storytelling that that. that Paul yeah. particularly does in the songs He, having gone, gotten his thrill of I love you and you love me songs he starts using yeah. songs as a way of telling story and I love that I mean, we'll see that again with you know she's leaving home and day in the life and also I just love uh, the economy that he tells yeah. stories in, in Eleanor Rigby you know <laughs> picks up the rice in the church where the yeah. weddings have been it's 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 like oh my god so much is said about that yeah. about, about who that yeah, woman that is one line, in that very sense yeah,
1: it's amazing and he sort of doubled down on the whole strings thing uh, they you know yesterday helped them break through to the other side you know to know that they could put on <laughs> some uh some chamber uh you know chamber orchestra strings or whatever uh, onto a pop song and it would still work uh, and uh, I think this was an octet it it sounds warm and sad, just like the yesterday strings do, but it's got that additional you know layer that you just talked about about the whole storytelling aspect of things
2: it also sounds deeply creepy. Yeah. yeah, that that whole violin piece is there's yeah. there's <laughs> a, a, just an underlying unsettledness. So back when I was a young boy and, and a Cub Scout, uh, yeah. dib dib we used to actually uh, sing a version of this song around the campfire, but it was a ghost story. Uh-huh. And I actually didn't know the real lyrics to the song until I think uh, I was around 12 and I listened to it properly for the first time and not singing over the top with my own stupid lyrics. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, the, yeah. but the ghost song fit perfectly. Like the way that the melody goes, the way the yeah. backing is, it's, it's just, it's almost a ghost song without being a ghost song.
1: Yeah, and it is sort of morbid in a way, but not in a sort of, Mm-hmm. I don't know. Not in a negative way. Like the whole uh, no one was saved. Like, what does that mean? Like, that, that there's yeah. a sort of tragedy, tragic. Sort of tail behind all this stuff, and it's it's very compelling lyrically speaking.
0: I'm very particular uh, on a lot of Paul songs on this album. Mm-hmm. I, I love Good Day Sunshine. Um, yeah. I think uh, uh, it's such a just a, such a joyous song, and and every everything about it is just so bounceable. That's the, actually for me the thing that I I think is the real revelation of this album is that it has such a reputation for being such an avant-garde, edgy kind of piece, but mm-hmm. probably more than any other Beatles album, I sing along to this one more than any of the others.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like it is such a singable album. Every single album song on this album, I can, I, I will, I will sing to, and yeah. and have had to refrain from doing so at work many times <laughs> over the past month. I have to say.
1: Yeah, I like all the little songs on the, on the album too, like the the sort of kind of throwaway songs. Like I love Doctor Robert. Oh you know, yes, Doctor Robert. With, is great. With, and I love the guitar sound they got. They they managed to get on on that uh, that sort of. It sort of sounds like a mischievous sort of character in the background sort of thing. I don't know. It has a sort of personality to it. Um, and the same with she said she said, "I just love the guitar sound on it." Just, yeah, just amazing.
0: So now on Reality Bomb, the podcast that Alex and myself produce, we have a feature called Gallery the Underrated, where we ask people to talk about underrated Doctor Who stories. And we really should have you on, Rob, to do that. Oh, okay. So what would you say are the underrated songs on this album? And you just mentioned Dr. Robert, you just mentioned... Yeah. <laughs> 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 Alex, are there any underrated songs you would say? What are the underrated songs for you?
2: I, I actually feel like on this album, it, it's mostly John songs that are underrated songs because a lot, when you look at the, at the track listing, you know, everybody knows Eleanor Rigby, everybody knows Taxman, everybody knows, uh, here, there and everywhere. Everybody knows Yellow Submarine. Everybody knows, you know, Good Day Sunshine. It's all of the songs that everybody knows with the exception of Tomorrow Never Knows, I would say, uh, Paul songs or their George songs. And most of John Lennon's songs tend to be a little bit less well known, or at least are, uh, if not deep cuts, at least just a little bit past the shallow end cuts. And, uh, and I think that's a real shame because for me, uh, well, as we were just saying about uh, all, of the, all of these songs being so uh, tuneful and so singable, I really feel like this is the place where in terms of tune and the way that they approach tune, John Lennon and Paul McCartney really just take different paths entirely. And
0: Paul goes down the path of extre- you know very tuneful, very sing along. I, I mean, I, I I'm actually going to mildly challenge you then, Alex, because uh, because actually I think uh, I I think uh, I think and your bird can sing is a real. I love singing that wailing that at the top of my lungs. Uh, I and and I also and I also and I also I also like I also like she said she said. I, I think I think they're I think they're eminently singable songs.
2: So I, I don't mean that, that John stops being singable essentially but that john starts almost as though he he has a tune and then he screws with it a little bit Yeah, and john lennon melodies kind of cease to be not the easy melody but they cease to be ones that necessarily will follow you all day but they will be with you and engage you the minute that you're listening to them i think
1: yeah yeah Um, that's, that's well observed
2: and i think that's a very deliberate choice i think it's something he's trying to do um
3: she said you don't understand what I said I said no, no, no You're wrong when I was a boy Everything was right Everything was right
2: And also, I mean, <laughs> I think the funny thing as well is if you listen to or if you read some of the, the statements that he made kind of about this album afterwards, And your bird could sing is the one that he doesn't like. And I think that's probably the reason is that and your bird can sing is really tuneful. And the Mm -hmm. the arrangement is quite, I would say, traditional in terms of the way that the Beatles work. And it's probably the most classic Beatles John Lennon song for this album. Personally, I think it's a great song,
0: but... (laughs)
2: I do think that there is that difference there.
0: For me, the the the, the song I would say is underrated is for no one, which I think is one of Paul's best songs. Um, anyone who has been on the wrong side of a breakup can immediately identify with it. I think the opening lines are just perfect, uh, but I think it's also a really sophisticated song. It's it's not saying to the one doing the jilting that you're an unfeeling cow. It's 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 pointing out the two different worlds people coming out of a relationship live in i love 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 the chorus and in her eyes you see nothing no sign
3: of love behind the tears cried for no one a
0: love that should have lasted years it's like the, the juxtaposition of those two realities is so mature
1: for some and it's it's and it's full of empathy yeah. as well, you know, uh, empathy instead of harmony, which is mm-hmm. which is really a really interesting way to, to approach things, you know, from the guy you know who wrote uh, "We Can Work It Out." Know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you, you might not expect that, but but you know that's the thing for me on that song. It, it's just so full of empathy, and it's 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 got that mature idea that sometimes relationships just end, you know, and they, they just end, and and you don't know why, but they do. Yeah, and uh, and that's a really Uh, that, that's, that's a harsh truth, you know, that in pop song, even a couple of years before just didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that common.
0: I I don't think I'd ever, I mean, I remember hearing that song for the first time when I was, uh, well, I guess it was 14 or 15. I I think I heard it on my 15th birthday. And I know, know, I know why Rob, because it was on Beatles love songs anthology, which I got for my 15th birthday. Um, and, and, and you were there for that birthday party and I remember hearing, I was And I I remember hearing that song and it was just, it was like getting hit between the eyes with a two by four because it just, it was just so stark and kind of honest about this is what it's like. You know, you're, you know, someone, someone's just getting on with their life and the other one is, the other one has, still has all this longing and hurt. And, but you know what? Both sides, both sides are right. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: that's right. For No One is the, uh, is the sequel to She Loves You. Because it it's it's got the you know it's got that same dynamic about you know a narrator or a third party talking about a love affair, but this time the love affair has gone sour and is sort of tragic. And uh, I thought, wow, I you know I gotta I gotta adjust my attitude or something you know, about love. <laughs> I'd like mm-hmm.
2: to actually take your uh, your sequel there, Rob, and I'd, I'd like to make it into a trilogy if you wouldn't mind by adding Martha, my dear, onto the end of that. Because there you have the beginning of the relationship the end of the relationship, and the movie that one of them made at the end. (laughs)
0: That's brilliant. So it's been said that this album was, appropriately for something called Revolver, revolutionary. So in what ways was it, and in what ways is that revolution being felt today? And since it's a big question, naturally I'm going to ask Rob first.
1: (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad you're asking me all the, you know, really easy questions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the revolutionary part, I think, was the, I, again, I think I mentioned earlier about uh, the idea that, um, that they were making an album to stand on its own as, uh, as an album, as a piece of work, as a piece of art. Uh, that wasn't just a sort of peripheral thing to that. Um, they were making songs that that don't necessarily that weren't weren't made necessarily to reproduce on stage. Uh, I, I think that was an important aspect of, of things as well. Yeah, the stage, they pretty much burned down the stage act
0: and just and decided to make the studio their stage. Yeah,
1: they were trying to make uh, an artistic statement, you know, and that, that to me is its biggest impact um, because, you know, that's the way things were sort of going in, in, around that era, but the Beatles really consolidated that approach uh, to, uh, to what an album is, uh, and to what, what the possibilities of an album, uh, can be, uh, as far as its influence today. I mean, any guitar band, uh, that sort of plays, you know, verse, chorus, verse with middle eight, uh, any guitar band that, uh, sort of adds, you know, backward guitar solos, uh, you know, just, just a hint of the old, uh, uh, lysergic acid, you know, that, that whole sound, uh, that sort of shimmering druggy type of type of sound that you hear. You certainly heard in, uh, in the nineties uh, with Britpop. I mean, if you're going to say that, uh, uh, that, that the Beatles, uh, influenced Brit you are talking about revolver. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, and they basically, um, and the, the the whole variation as well that like the, the different types of music uh that that are on this album all in one place uh and and for that to still be okay uh is uh i'd say that those types of things are still being felt today uh by bands making records Alex how about you
0: um
2: well i mean in in terms of revolutionary i think we've already covered it pretty pretty well i think it's it's the use of the studio as an instrument in just a way that had never been done before you know there is that to an extent on rubber Soul, but this is where i think it really becomes a, a intense there's a level there's also a level of intentionality to the production here like uh almost like this the production and the arrangement becomes uh, like, like almost symbolic in the way that they uh, they do it sometimes so if you look at taxman uh to begin with, not not my favourite song. I'm never a huge fan of people grumbling about taxes, um, but at the same time, in terms of music, it's fantastic. And if you listen to it, the, the 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 tracks that we have going on the left side of the of the ear are doing a very traditional drum and, drums, bass and guitar song. And then on the right-hand side, you have George, uh, George Harrison going crazy on the guitar, and you also have what I assume is the rest of the band just trying different rhythm uh, instruments, just one mm-hmm. after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other.
3: Don't ask me what I want it for I'm Mr. Wilson If you don't want to play some more
2: and the the left hand of the, of the of of your of the sound never stops changing right the way through that song. Meaning that it just constantly feels like it's like shifting and moving and altering. You know?
3: Don't ask me what I want it for. And you
2: know, and that, and that yeah. level of intention in the studio is is I think something that uh, brian wilson is doing but brian wilson is doing it with the mind of a classical composer and these are people doing it with the minds of people who just want to screw some up
1: <laughs> and i think paul mccartney's uh sort of raga solo in taxman yeah. is also a uh, pretty kick-ass
2: the great thing about revolver is revolver didn't let anybody know that Sgt. peppers was coming yeah like the yeah. amazing thing about revolver is it's so good so forward-thinking and the
0: next album is even more so you know yeah. like well on that bombshell that brings us to the end of our conversation on revolver if you have anything you'd like to say you can send us an email at Beatles at gemgeekerarebug.com or visit our website at a year with the and i don't think we're ever going to have a url for it so just give up now and, and now as we do every episode we're going to have what we call extra credit homework where we listen or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to in this month, we've been watching this. But really good composers go one better.
3: They don't just pick a nice chord to fit the melody. They instinctively know how to chain chord sequences together to provide a whole new dimension, a new layer of movement to the song. I Saw Her Standing There, written in 1962, has four chords in it. I Am The Warrus, written by John Lennon in 1967, has 16 juxtaposed with each other to create the aural effect of a shifting, unstable landscape. There are eight in the intro alone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, And above that, the tune is going nowhere. It's like a police siren. I am he as you are, he as you are me, and we are all together. But the chords are on a journey of their own. Every time they change, they alter their relative position to the tune. This has an effect of disorientating the listener. It's a musical mudslide. harmonic undercurrent drives the song onwards in the original recording from the film magical mystery tour complemented by the psychedelic imagery the harmony glides and slithers all over the place throughout the song
0: that's a clip from howard goodall's 2005 documentary series 20th century greats which devoted a whole episode to lennon and mccartney this sadly isn't out on dvd and it drives me crazy then that's but fortunately you can find it on video streaming sites So I'll just throw in a bit of context about this. Uh, Howard Goodall is a composer and I suppose a musicologist. He's done all kinds of music, including most recently he did uh, the West End musical version of Bend It Like Beckham. And nerds like us probably know him for the music he did for Red Dwarf. (laughs) And for the past 15 years, he has done on television these amazing documentaries, which are basically illustrated essays that explain how music works. Uh, My favorite of this is actually called How Music Works. Uh, He did it in 2006, and it's about all the different sort of elements of music. And in 2005, he did this series, 20th Century Greats, which was about some of the people in popular music whose innovation was so profound it... Influenced classical music. And he uh, cited the Beatles along with Bernard Harriman, the film composer Leonard Bernstein, and Cole Porter. And I think what he does here is, I think, a really nifty thing. He, he kind of explains what classical music techniques the Beatles used almost innately, I'd say and it sort of explains the music theory behind the Beatles in a really accessible way. (laughs) So
1: with that explanation out of the way, that rather long explanation, Rob, how'd you like it? (laughs) I loved it. I I thought it was fascinating. I think the thing that really stood out for me was, and and that was made the whole thing really charming is the fact that Goodall was a a fan or is a fan of the Beatles. Uh, And the, uh, and, and I was very interested in, uh, in in the sort of overarching context of, of the documentary, which was that um, classical composers of the sort of mid twentieth century had sort of largely given up on a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the conventions of, of composition, just to get away from cliches. What they also got away from was you know their audience, you know, and sort of <laughs> uh, alienated uh, uh, you know the, the sort of average listener because you know they were trying to push things out so far. Uh, to get away from from uh, those conventions, but that the Beatles rescued uh, Western music uh, from you know from getting too far out of the out of the sort of realm of accessibility, which I think is uh, is an incredibly was an incredibly interesting way of approaching uh, their their influence.
0: I liked how it approached the theory in that I felt like it treated every period of the Beatles kind of equally in many ways. It it, it it would, he he was able to talk about the sort of theory and, and what was behind, you know, the more, their more Eastern influenced music. Uh-huh. He talked to me, he, 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 I mean, I think the, I think his, his, his breakdown of what makes Tomorrow Never Knows a song is really incredible. Um, all, all the radical ideas behind that. Tomorrow Never Knows is John Lennon's attempt to capture the experience
3: of an LSD trip in music. Radical Idea Number One The song's subject is the mystic writing of hip psycho guru Timothy Leary and a sacred text called The Tibetan Book of the Dead. Radical Idea Number Two. it fused Indian musical elements with Western pop, merging sitar and tanpura with electric bass, electric and acoustic guitars, organ, distorted piano and a specially retuned and studio-treated drum kit. By way of the long, regenerated note C held on the sitar throughout, it also welcomed back the first so-called drone into mainstream Western music since the Middle Ages. Radical idea number three. George Martin took Lennon's voice and in an attempt to evoke the sound of hundreds of distant murmuring and whispering Tibetan monks, applied an elaborate series of bizarre studio effects to it, some invented specifically for this song, like feeding the voice electronically through this, a Leslie cabinet. Leslie cabinets were originally designed for the electronic Hammond organ, taking the sound and swishing it about with spinning wheels but no-one had thought of putting a voice through it before. Radical idea number four! And radical idea number five was the McCartney-led use of tape loops running on a chain of five additional machines mixed live onto the master track. The Beatles were deep in uncharted waters, not just for pop but for any kind of music. They took what they learned from Tomorrow Never Knows and applied aspects of it, especially the reverse
0: tape effects, to many of their other songs. And you know, so, so it wasn't just this sort of, you know, well, the Beatles just, you know, brought back pretty music. I mean, he, he, I mean, he was willing to go deal
1: with their edgy stuff too. Yeah.
0: I, I like that, that sort of, I like the range that he had to it. And, um, and,
1: and the fact that, you know, the fact that accessibility doesn't mean simple and dumb, you know, no. but it can also be, you know... Uh, involved and complex, but just not sound that way and uh and that that was a really interesting uh point that i I picked up from that and there's a lot of lots of su- compositional surprises that are inside of of the music that maybe I you know maybe people and certainly i uh didn't didn't see you know before before he pointed them out
0: well Alex how'd you like it
2: i I gotta say i I was really in, in two minds about this. Actually, very, very much in two months. I loved him sitting down with the piano and talking about the music and walking you through. It was very interesting, very clear, very, very well done. Um, I hated the music history bits. I do not like good Goodall as a music historian whatsoever, um, which probably has a lot to do with the fact that I listen to the classical music that he hates the existence of. I I knew it. I knew it. Uh, And yeah, I just I just felt like um, the history the history side of it. There was a lot of reductionism, uh, a lot of refusal to kind of understand or delve into why that was happening. It wasn't just that people were bored. There were like actual reasons why this was happening. Um, And I really really have a problem with the thesis that they drove people away from classical music, so those people picked up the Beatles. And the Beatles are the reason why music continued, because the people that were going to listen to or being driven out of classical performances by extreme modernist and postmodernist breakdown of music weren't then going down to the music halls and listening to rock music. They were going down to the concert hall down the road and listening to the orchestra that was playing Bach.
0: You know, I don't, sure, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think that's entirely what his thesis is. I think it's the. I think. I think. I think that in itself is a reductionism. I, I think. I think it's. I think it's not that they drove them away to go listen to the Beatles. I think. I think that it's that the Beatles preserved those techniques so that so that people who were enthused about music could continue to f- discover it and and be in, and be enthused about some of those techniques. But classical composers
2: um, were also co- maintaining those techniques. Is the thing. Like it wasn't like all by being compo- dead. Well, no, it wasn't like all composers of orchestral music suddenly went into postmodernism and modernism. There were traditionalists uh, composers right the way through. I did like the idea that at the end, by the end of the Beatles career, uh, they had become something that was beginning to be seen again in orchestral music through music uh, composers like Steve Reich and Philip Glass. I think that's an extremely good point. I also feel like though that would never have happened if the post if the modernists beforehand hadn't completely destroyed the elitist superstructure of classical music at the time, allowing it to be able to take in bands like the Beatles. You know,
0: like I think, but I but 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 I also think Goodall gives credit to 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 the modernists, uh, particularly Stockhausen, for for you know, I I for being an influence on McCartney in 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 developing things like tape loops. And oh, absolutely, things. absolutely. Um, but
2: I I feel like it's. Tomorrow never knows definitely takes the tape loops as an influence, but uh, Revolution Number no. Nine is a modernist orchestral song, and in fact, it's a very complex and interesting one. But we don't talk about that.
0: I mean, were there any interesting discoveries for for you th- during it, uh, in spite in spite of your qualms? Actually, Alex? you
2: know what the the thing that this this did for me that I had never actually got a, uh, a concept of around, uh, before in my head was i 've always considered John Lennon one of the greatest rhythm guitarists in in rock music, but, but I never really had a reason why <laughs> you know like yeah. I just always really enjoyed listening to him, and uh, how good old starts about uh, the fact that John Lennon creates these shifting chords that just constantly are changing underneath very simple melodies, and that 's what I love about his guitar playing mm. is that his rhythm guitar playing is is constantly shifting it 's never doing the same thing, so I, I mean I really have to i 'm really appreciate the fact that he he actually gave me words around what i appreciate most about john lennon as a musician
0: which sort of sums up what what i like about it overall i i like i love his explanation of things of concepts like harmony and modulation mm-hmm. and, how, and how and how and how chords work and how chords naturally gravitate towards each other and how it can build the, the sort of demonstration of how the chords build in hey jude to sort of create a, an overall feeling is really quite is really quite mm-hmm. incredible and 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 uh, that sort of really grabbed me Rob, were there any interesting discoveries for you?
1: Yeah, uh, my favorite uh, section of, of, of the uh, documentary was when he was talking about uh, Penny Lane. Uh, and and uh, the whole modulation, you mentioned modulation there, Graham, and, and that, wa- that was a complete revelation for me.
3: What effect then does this modulation have on the song? Well, for one thing, it alters our perception of the chorus. Listen to what it sounds like without the modulation. And the banker never wears a back. In the pouring rain Very strange Penny Lane is in my ears And in my eyes It's fine, isn't it? But it's not very surprising In the proper version There's much more of a shift in gear As we move into the chorus And the banker never wears a mack In the pouring rain Very strange Penny Lane is in It is, of course, quite common in a pop song for the voice to rise up to a higher range for the chorus, to sound more celebratory, more frenzied, more desperate, or more passionate. And McCartney's voice does indeed rise predictably upwards for the chorus. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. But here's the clever bit while the voice is rising upwards for the chorus, the modulation is actually a downwards shift. Moving the key downwards has the subconscious effect of making us feel slightly wistful, as if the joy isn't a total joy, but a joy experienced at a slight remove from the events it portrays. Since the song is about McCartney's childhood memories of growing up in suburban Liverpool, this makes perfect emotional sense to us as we listen. There's one other byproduct of this downward shift. At the end of the chorus, we're forced to move back up a gear as the verse starts again. Because we're now modulating upwards, the incoming verse greets us like a new day full of optimism and
1: youth. I actually didn't realize that the modulation dynamics happening in that song until he pointed it out. Um, and it's so, and, and as he mentions, <clears throat> it's so sneakily done and so well done. It's totally seamless. And yet the song would be, it wouldn't be the song that we know it today without it. Uh, and just those little subtle compositional flourishes, just mm-hmm. to push the melody along and to sort of change the whole mood, the way we feel about it when we're listening to it. Just just down to, you know, the technique of modulation. And uh, to me, that was that was a real eye opener. That's my favorite part of of the whole thing.
0: What I love about his documentaries generally is, is how inventively he's able to explain musical concepts, you know, from whether it's, you know, playing simple tunes like Danny boy in Mm -hmm. different ways, or it's try or, or, just demonstrating how how a Beatles song could have been played, how Hey Jude could have been done if you did it this way or did this way, I, I or or just demonstrating how modulation works by moving from a different colored room to a different colored room. I, I love that kind of ways of that Howard Goodall makes mm-hmm. music accessible, and you know. And admittedly, I'm am probably more in his camp when it comes to the classical music argument too. That too, so you know that's all right. <laughs> we also we, yeah. Alex and I also disagree <laughs> on Peter Capaldi, who Doctor Who. So you know, there you go. What fascinates me so much is that Goodall points out that none of them were classically trained, except for yes. I guess George Martin, which he doesn't yes. really talk about. But but they all have such an intuitive sense of all this. And I guess to go back to the start of this episode, um, I guess, my question is, was this what enabled them to make these increasing quantum leaps to go forward, going forward?
1: I think they just continued to be hungry, you know, hungry for new sounds and, uh, and, and new influences, you know, to feed their own art. I think they were constantly on the move for that type of thing. Like we mentioned Penny Lane earlier, um, uh, there's that famous story where, uh, Paul heard the Brandenburg Concerto on TV or something like that. And he went to George Martin and said, there's this Really high trumpet. I don't know what it's called, but you know, can we use it on a record? And and George Martin you know, said, yeah, totally can do that. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, like that that type of thing. I think the dynamics that they had going with with George Martin in the studio, plus their own listening habits, probably yes. fed a lot into that. You know, and in, in terms of in terms of like you have to keep you know grist for the mill sort of thing. And and they they just did that naturally too. You know, they were able to take something that they were into and turn it into Beatles music somehow. You know, that was that was one of the things that made them great.
2: For sure. And and Paul McCartney as well. I don't think you can really underestimate like how amazing Paul McCartney's ability to just completely master something is as well. Yeah. You know, when you've got someone who can who can just like as as I said, I think George Martin was probably the the seed for a lot of stuff, but the fact that Paul McCartney could then walk away and come up with something like Penny Lane, you know, like Yeah. Is, is, is incredible and shows a level of, I would say, like, craftsmanship that no one else in that band had.
0: Well, I'll be very interested to hear from our listeners what their thoughts are on Howard Goodall's 20th century greats. And that's all the time we have. We'll be back in a little while for a discussion of the Beatles' 8th album from 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That's next time on A Year With The Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Alex Kennard. Thank you, too. Thank you. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next
1: time. Well, on that bombshell, that brings us to the end
0: of our conversation on revolver. If you have anything you'd like to say, <laughs> and, uh, yes, uh, okay. Thank you for thank you for telling me. Yes, it's okay. Um, yes, it's it's just warning me that this thing is about to explode, and it's all good. Yes, all right. thanks, guys. don't let it explode. I that. Um, yeah. I have no intention of letting it explode, so don't worry. I, I just want to. Uh, it's just, but I, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> let me try that again. Uh, <laughs> now that I'm completely f***ed and thrown, so there you go. Um, yeah, that's getting good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think you should keep that bit uh, in. tell you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think you should keep that bit. Man, the amount of discarded material that happens when a Kenard comes to go be <laughs> I go going to be on my podcast. This is just not I tell you. This coward yes, fellow yes. is is a bad influence on 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 podcasting. They call me channel, one take off. So all. You know. all right. So let's go. <laughs>